0: Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Laura Stark, professor at Vanderbilt University. I had the great pleasure of interviewing Amit Prasad about his recent book, Imperial Technoscience, Transnational Histories of MRI in the United States, Britain, and India, which was published by MIT Press in 2014. Amit Prasad is associate professor of... Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Laura Stark, professor at Vanderbilt University. I had the great pleasure of interviewing Amit Prasad about his recent book, Imperial Technoscience, Transnational Histories of MRI in the United States, Britain, and India, which was published by MIT Press in 2014. Amit Prasad is Associate Professor of Sociology and Director of the South Asian Studies Program at University of Missouri. He is also editor of the journal Science, Technology, and Society. I've long admired Prasad for not being fearful of big ideas and for showing how we can use approaches from post-colonial studies to think through specific cases in science, technology, and medicine, and importantly for showing why we would want to. His book, Imperial Technoscience, is evident of this skill. The book is a study of MRI in India, the USA, and the UK, from the magnetic resonance research of the middle of the 20th century until the present day. And yet the book is not a comparative study. Rather, it tells the parallel stories of local labs, stories that sometimes connect, at other times remain surprisingly disconnected, and at yet other times shift location altogether. Prasad uses the idiom of trails to explore what he calls the connected and disconnected trails. His point is to argue against stories of lag and lack, which he does by documenting research on magnetic resonance not only in the U.S. and the the U.K., but also in India, where research started in the 1940s and continued unabated through the 1960s until researchers shifted their focus to other areas. On the whole, the book breaks down the classic dichotomies conventionally used to understand and explain transnational technoscience. West versus non-West, pure versus applied, Research versus Development. In doing so, it shows how limited conventional accounts of transnational technoscience have been and how limiting the current toolkit of social studies of science and medicine can be. But it's an optimistic book and one well worth reading. This interview is a collective effort. I read Prasad's Imperial Technoscience along with graduate students in my seminar called Social Studies of Science, Technology, and Medicine. My co-interviewers were Dina Screen, Peter Kent Stoll, Elizabeth Manning, Meredith Matlin, Yemi Olubuwele, and Courtney Van Hooten. We had the pleasure of interviewing Prasad in person while he was visiting Vanderbilt to talk about his new research on stem cell therapy in India. Thanks for joining us. Amit, thank you so much for joining us um, and for talking about your really wonderful book, um, Imperial Technoscience. So the book, it's a study of technoscience in India, the U.S., and the U.K., and yet it's not a conventional comparative study in which uh, a scholar might sort of reify or hold stable these national borders and then look at similarities and differences. Instead, you have this approach in which you are looking at the linkages and also the – the, um, the linkages that are not apparent mm-hmm. in these different sites. So I'm wondering if you could just start um, by saying a bit about how you would characterize the design of the study, because I don't take it to be a conventional comparative study. Mm.
1: Well, thank you again for, like, making me a part of this. This is just beautiful, actually. Uh, I had a lot of reservations to start with doing a comparative study. And the first reservation that was coming is that very often than not, in comparative studies, we try to homogenize large categories, social categories, be it India, be it Britain, be it US. And even if it is with regard to scientific cultures, that can be deeply problematic. That was one kind of a concern we had, I had. The other kind of concern that I had was arising from my sociological training, so to say, that wherein, particularly Weberian kind of comparisons, and this is quite common in sociology, that there is a as a methodological trick, so to say, we use an ideal type. And from there, we compare. So the idea is that not that you're comparing, let's say, West vis-a-vis non-West or as a model category or something. But ideal type, as we know, with Weberian kind of a thing, would also slip very easily into Eurocentrism of certain kind, Euro-West wherein the Euro-West centric thing becomes a model and the other one always becomes in some way or the other the lag. So this was my second motivation which was there. There was also another motivation which was very, very strong, like which came out to me strikingly that we, when we say, let's say, U.S. culture or British culture, like when Britain was doing extremely well in MRI research, it had scientists from all over the world. And if there were not that many non-Western scientists, it has got in part, it's not to do just with the, the culture that we understand as a something cognitive, but also political-economic, the fact that they could not have visas, the fact that they could not go in other ways or those other connections, not to forget colonialism and all. And that leads to another point which I don't make as strongly, but which I like to make very much, that very often than not when we have thought about center peripheries, we have thought of centers emerging by itself, so be it, let's say, U.S. or the West. But what if we think of, like, center is one which is able to mobilize these connections. And in colonial context, it might appear in different way, so that it, like in the sense, it hides what it gets. Like, for example, tea. Tea is a classic example. I mean, we keep saying English tea. Tea is not grown in England at all. Then the argument goes that they're the one who divides the plantations. Now, at one level, it makes sense that, okay, it goes with capitalism or so, and they figured out like these different ways of uh, trying to brew, trees or, uh, brew tea and things like that. They come to know that actually that is also not true as much. That there was a botanist based in uh, Calcutta or Kolkata, the present-day Kolkata, who has spent three years in China trying to find out how they do it and all, and they learned and he brought it back to India. So the point here to me is that, one, how center and periphery themselves are constituted through these connections and networks. Then I will add to another thing is that what we consider as, let's say, just British or the U.S. or even for that matter Indian, it's not fixed for time. Something which is like very strong, it might be some very deeply abiding, but it also shifts with time. And many times it is constituted within or through these networks. And these are transnational networks. So let's let me give again another example like example so to say that wherein like you you see that what is called as indian so they say one reason one of the things they were saying is that oh the reason why they don't patent is because in india uh, knowledge is seen in a certain way goddess Arswati is very different from goddess lakshmi who is goddess of wealth uh, but the more the moment you start going into further you start seeing that the politics is actually defined by the fact that how do you actually get uh, basically, uh, something patented, whether there is legal support for it, who can. Su- so, the point being here is that my biggest concern was the moment you go into comparative, you are fixing these categories. And what we are missing on is that the very categories are emerging and transforming. And in that sense, it is very Latourian that what we consider as Europe or India itself emerges out of these, or Africa, or whatever examples we can think of, is emerging out of these connections so these are the reasons why i was that why i was firmly decided i'm not going to do a comparative study
0: so on, on that front that's really fascinating yeah. and um Nice to hear, very sympathetic with a lot of things we've been discussing. Yeah. It seems like one of the challenges then becomes um, sort of also kind of a Latourian challenge yeah. of where then do you begin a study? Yeah. And Yemi had a question on this front as well. And I, sh- I should add, one of the things that you show notes so nicely in the book is that. Although the United States eventually came to be seen as the center, this was by no means obvious or intuitive. It was the UK was seen as the center, then it was moving around, and the centering of the US was as much accomplished by people in India referring back to the US instead of referring to each other. Um, so, yeah, Yemi is going to build on this. Hi, Dr. Prasad. Thank you for being with us today. So, I just wanted to ask you, as a student in, in an interdisciplinary field, I find it particularly challenging and oftentimes exhausting to sit down and begin to hash out some of these densely knotted concepts like culture, science, economics, policy, et cetera, in order to clearly communicate my ideas. With special regards to your fifth chapter, where you walk us through the local cultures of techno science in the United States, Britain, and India, how do you decide where to begin? Have you formulated a standardized process in which you enter these projects and kind of untangle these densely knotted ideas?
1: Well, let me first start with this, that this was perhaps the most difficult part for me, I mean, which was even during my dissertation or even later, because dissertation was largely with uh, two nations I was trying to do. Uh, This was extremely difficult for a variety of reasons, because what was happening is that something you might have seen, the book is quite short at one level. And many times that even in one sentence I've condensed quite a lot of things which the data might be coming from so many different places, so many different categories. But this was a sort of a concern that I had, that how do I tell practical concerns? One, how do I tell a narrative which does not just expect so much from my readers that it just throws off in that regard? The other was another practical concern was that, okay, who's going to publish it? If it is going to, which area will it fit or not fit? So these practical concerns, and they did weigh on in terms of the form it took in certain ways. So there were two strategies that I applied here. One was that, let let me start with a a motivation part. So for example, a simple question of lack. It's a very simple example. You go to, let's say, a lab in India, Africa, Latin America, or anywhere like outside U.S., even in Britain or otherwise you see that there are some things which are not as present. Like, okay, there will be less machines like this. Very evident that, okay, there is a lack. You compare the funding, there is a lack. There is less money. But the question then I started asking is that, how are we to understand this itself? So take an example again here. In 1990s, in India, they decided to build an indigenous MRI, limb-specific, and this comes out because of the fact not just the cost, But at that time, one of the big concerns the scientists in India had that by moving to higher and higher magnetic field, they are suppressing some of the other data that we should also recover. So they decide on this. So when I interview one of the nodal agencies uh, that why did they not build the MRI, they said we could not buy the magnet. And I said, why didn't you buy the magnet? There are these two companies which are supplying it. And uh, these two companies are like were based initially in Britain. Oxford Instrument was one, and then there was another one in the U.S. They said, we did not have foreign exchange. And at 1990s, this was the key concern. So what you start seeing here is that suddenly a new genealogy is open. What we call hard currency is hard, not just because of economy being good at this present point of time, but the whole history of the colonial and other kinds of things which put people in a certain way. So the lack is very contextually tied. So the question for me was that how do I unravel and yet not go into too much of economics kind of a neoclassical or other kinds of analysis. And this is which I was trying to tread in so many ways. Now the difficulty was also with regard to, I would say, the the physics and the engineering part. I spent one year actually in the lab, and this may not show, and partly maybe I don't like talking as much, to just understand how the physics part of it works. Because it, it may just seem like that, okay, like I mean, I would keep hearing this kind of a thing, that, oh, this image is a myth or something. I spent one year in a lab going through the textbooks, talking to the scientists, another, actually, right, six, eight months in a radiological lab. How do they use these images? And the problem here is, was just to understand what questions to ask. That why is it like when they are trying to build or bring together, like in Chapter 2, there's a lot of technical stuff, with regard to the computers being brought in, or some others, how is the social brought in. And this was a concern, that here is that I'm moving at so many levels, that I'm moving at national listing level, then I'm coming back to such intricate details about very specific aspect of the machine itself. And this is, and if you see the second chapter, for example, from there it moves with regard to Britain in the broader scale. I, I would not give an easy answer, so to say. The answer is, in some ways, is that we do need to figure out ways to deal with it because of the fact that otherwise we start making those categories themselves as stereotypes. So the lag and the lack, this just starts perpetuating. The other thing I'm, I'll ask is a very simple blunt. This thing is that why should we see it even as a lack? I mean, okay, somebody may not want to have MRI or something. Okay, there are people, societies who live in a different world. So how are we to do it? And that took me to what I would say this double strategy where I was doing a deconstruction of the categories that are there and then trying to open up. But to go back to your question, Yemi, that I would say that something we cannot avoid, particularly now that we are living in very transnational kinds of context, transcultural, we are very sensitive to, with regard to even race, gender and other this thing, which, is, which actually forces us to just go beyond. And I can give examples even from other distinct like we were talking about infant mortality, we just came up in a certain way. We, we know of a study, for example, that, that uh, premature childbirth among Afro-Americans in Chicago was seen to be very significant. And they were trying to find out why is it occurring, and they tried to compare with, let's say, with regard to race, like okay, people from Africa or otherwise control for everything, nothing was working. Eventually, they gave, they gave this argument that this has to do perhaps with the long-term impact of racism. or something. Now, the question here to bring in these other categories is from that point also, that we will have to bring in all these economic, social, cultural, how they co-define and redefine. Now, <laughs> that does that make it easy to write a narrative? I'm not sure. I had a very hard time writing. Very hard time. I'm, it may not show, I mean, and maybe the reason why it is short is because I was... Having a hard time, like okay, how do I make it so that it doesn't become unreadable?
0: I think one of the um, the things that is most admirable about the book is that it's so condensed in a very good way. So there's so many doorstop books, and this is a really uh, it's a nice pocket book that we could uh, bring together to a course and and actually have conversations over. And it seems like one the the thing that you're pressing against in the book is this. Um, the diffusion narrative itself. So the Everett Rogers line that technologies diffuse outward and reading your, um, the, the book, the story of the MRI, even before it was called the MRI, um, really nicely shows from the forties until the the present day, the shifting centers, um, uh, but also the way in which there were these parallel, Stories going on that it seems like this post colonial twist on simultaneous discovery. Um, And so, Peter was actually going to follow up with some questions about disconnected trails and connected.
2: Right. So, um, and I I think in relation to this idea of pushing back against the idea of uh, the technological diffusion model, Mm -hmm. you talk about the concept throughout the book of techno-scientific trails. Um, Just as a quick example, for example, in Chapter 1, you talk about how invention, it's constructed retrospectively. So you have, uh, you know, within this Eurocentric framework, you have countries that are considered, uh, within the West, uh, being framed as these spaces where invention takes place, and scientists are privileged as the inventors of the MRI. I I think you specifically talk about the scientists Lottabar and Mansfield specifically. And so I want to ask, um, in regards to perhaps even other studies in STS or specifically looking at MRI research, um, in what ways does the concept of connected and disconnected trails help us understand these ongoing colonial engagements, uh, entanglements, pardon me?
1: Well, thank you again. I mean, these are just uh, lovely questions. I mean, uh, it's such a privilege to be able to engage at this level because – Sometimes it does, uh, doesn't come out that how much like something can be so hard to put in, like when you are trying to... I mean, the key question that I started with, I mean, one of the things was that, and there's a lot written on MRI with regard to invention in particular. And the idea becomes is that, oh, there was this priority dispute, whether somebody got credit or not. So if I bring in, let's say, somebody from India, let's say uh, Suryan's example in the 1940s, wherein he was doing some of the study of flow with regard to NMR and all. Then it becomes that, oh, look at, there were these other things also. Now, the difficulty that starts arising with this is that it keeps secure this idea that, okay, invention has occurred with this kind of a euphoric genius and the rest was to follow. So the story remains linear by itself. that Here is a discovery or invention and it follows. Now, one of the reasons when I went to particularly Lotover as well as Mansfield was not just to say that, oh, the priority dispute is complicated. It was to show that actually it was very incidental and it was not just a contingent thing, but it was through these connected networks or so, or trails, that it became an invention. So let's take the example of Lotover. Lotover, like when he came up with the idea first, he did not even believe that, okay, something like, what uh, Demedian was claiming was going to be possible. So he was not even thinking in those terms. And he sees that like one of the postdocs performing the experiment, and then he, he also knew, as I point out, which is normally not talked about, and to me this was not a small additional thing, that he knew that Demedian was very interested in putting people in the magnets. It's, to me it's a very important technical point, because to get this idea of using the magnet as an outside to measure also, Lotto was though trained in physics and chemistry. And he realized that, okay, you can put somebody in the magnet and it's a very simple thing. That how do I know where the data is coming from? Like, okay, I may have, let's say, just like cancerous tissue and that would show a different T1 and T2 variations. But I don't know where it is coming from. So what what do I do? I keep incising different tissues to find out where it came from because it can be from anywhere in the body. And that is when he realized that if you put basically a magnetic field perpendicular to it, It can just map spatially. Now, this is actually a very, very simple. In general terms, this might be seen as just offering a technical solution to a bigger idea. It can be, and actually, the, the editors in nature, that is how they saw it. That is why they were not willing to publish it. Now, And that doesn't mean that Lottobo was not a very well-known scientist. In fact, the reason why the paper was accepted, as the editors point out, because Lottobo's name was so much. Mansfield similarly makes this argument. He had given this argument that how actually using NMR you can do microscopy. You can find, and he was looking at very small lattices. So when I was interviewing him, I asked him this question. That, okay, how do you move from there to MRI? These are very dramatic differences. And he's, uh, the, his story is, like he just said, how it came up over a cup of tea. Now, what you start seeing here is that there is a genealogical thing which is at play, a trope. The idea of that, how suddenly, like this idea, there's a light bulb which lights up. That, okay, I was having tea and then it comes up. And as I tried to show in the first chapter, the way it works here is that it connects in a very interesting way uh, the, 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 so to say, biography of the scientist in order to create this idea of invention. That's something which is a rupture, but also tied to or coming out of the biography of that person, that he or she was a person was coming out. So the point for me in the first instance was, unless I open up this very idea of invention, the argument which is usually given is, that okay, the other side there are cognitive psychologists who have talked about, that ideas are distributed. And I use uh, Hutchins' argument that it is distributed like materially, geographically, as well as, historically. But my this thing was that with the trail thing was that in many ways that I don't really know whether it is an idea or not. It keeps existing in these trails and if they connect together it just becomes something. Now, the point here being so to say is that doesn't mean that Lotoba did not understand that okay, he is on to something very big when he was writing in his notebook. But what he realized was at how these connected networks have come together, or the connected trails have come together. And he brought it in that way. So if I open it up, then what happens for me first is that these are the cases which are successful is because of the fact that these trails got connected. Now I can use it in other cases also, like we can look at successes of other kinds. While if I look at examples of some very bright ideas coming up, I mean in this case I use India, but it could be elsewhere too. Anywhere or other people who were like working in MRI whose name we don't even know. of, But they remained, so to say, disconnected trails. Now with disconnected trails, I am not at all, some people argue that, as though I'm saying that lack in another way because in India, the disconnected trails are more. But so were they in US as well as elsewhere. It could be it partly because of resources or otherwise. So what I'm shifting here is that the very idea of what is an invention, why does MRI come about? these are coming through these connected trails. And so in a sense, it is a very material cognitive thing. It is not merely that, okay, the ideas are by themselves, so to say.
0: In Chapter 4, you especially take up the case of India. And I think you do such a marvelous job showing um, this sort of disjoint just just disjointed thinking about time in terms of lag and lack, because India um, came to be read as um, being, having a lag to the U.S.-based center. And yet at the same time, your own research, it sounds like uh, very difficult, trying to find uh, records and doing oral histories in India of the fact that there was actually parallel research going on in yeah. the 40s but because the trails didn't connect they ended up just being um parallel stories and eventually fading out in the in the 60s in India yeah. because of um because of financing but also the the shift towards doing specialist yeah. knowledge given the way that mm-hmm. the um the former colonial bureaucracy was set up as well. Um, But thinking about the issues of these tropes and the idea of the, the Eureka moment yeah. and these sorts of things as being read back into when discoveries and inventions happen um, we're, we've been reading of course some Donna Haraway on yeah. situated knowledge and um, sort of thinking about your um, your own training in yeah. sociology but also your own training in science as well and Elizabeth wanted to follow up with you sure. about this question
3: yeah, I was interested in um, how your academic career developed. Uh, since you started with a degree in physics in India, and now you ended up you're a sociologist in your, in the in you're in the U.S. Uh, could you tell us the story behind your trajectory and how it led you into studying transnational histories of MRI?
1: Well, thank you again and. I mean it's interesting that we brought back the biography because many a times when we are looking at inventions and this is a very interesting thing, it may seem very small is that at one level that how the biography and the invention something which is epistemic, technical also how they are connected or not connected in, and in, in the invention case like I write about in my case I was doing physics like in India there is this thing that if you are like good in studies so to say, you just do science Or like uh, there is this kind of a thing that okay I mean and physics was the big this thing that okay you do and I did want to do like in high school like in India you got to decide early like high school because you go into engineering or medicine or so I wanted to do medicine to be honest initially partly because to follow my grandfather's thing and I wanted to do that but I realized that uh, we had to do this dissection of rats for our high school I can't take blood. I mean, I realized that as long as I was doing that that surgical cutting very well without blood coming out, it was great. But the moment I saw a lot of blood, it was just, you know, so. I said, okay, medicine is not for me. It's not, I can't take blood, I and mean, it's not going to work. I did take engineering exams, like, because I, there are, my friends were taking, so I thought, let's take it. And I actually qualified for several of those engineering schools and all. But I decided to do physics. At that time, I was unsure that whether I want to do history or physics because of these. And I still remember that I'm just after my high school sitting in, because the school, the college that I went to, it's one of those uh, places where, they, even though they have 90% cut off just to like, invite, but after that they will inv- ask 600 people for 30 places for interview or something like this. And I remember sitting in the interview and they said, well, I'm not going to history at all. That is for those people who just don't know how to do study or so. And they just the guy just dismissed it or something. And I also did not argue very much. At that point, I said, okay, physics. I, and I in, was enjoying to an extent. But it was becoming a sort of a chess game in a certain way. That uh, that wherein I like to get 100 in math. And this was like a goal I used to play with. Even when I was in sociology, like the stats, I would just, okay, I have to get 100. That was my this. But it was not something I was enjoying. Then I... Coincidentally, what was happening? Somebody suggested that why don't you do sociology because there were various social things I was, and I bumped onto this person J P S Uberoi, who interestingly had very sort of similar background. My the person who got me into sociology, so to say, he he had his undergraduate in aeronautical engineering, then masters in economics and PhD in socio anthropology actually, and he was doing sociology of science. But his interest was very different, and he just took me under his wings. So I joined, like, in India you have three years bachelor's. So master's is like your senior here. Here, He just suddenly took me under his wings that, okay, I have to, everybody thought, okay, he has to work with him because science, science, whatever. And But his idea was, and it's very interesting, in one of my recent papers, which came out of the SCAT plenary that I'd given, wherein I talk about his work quite a bit, he was a structuralist who came, so to say, after the Levi-Straussian influence. So there was one kind of a Julian Grema kind of a thing that instead of the binary, they were like uh, what like Julian Grema talks of the square. S, non-S, both S, S non-S as well as neither S non-S. And through that you analyze. But his idea was how he broke it open and then he will go to the non-dualist. And what he wanted to find through the science going back to Paracelsus or so was what is so to say the underlying structure of European modernity. He even wrote this book like Goethe as a scientist he did his uh, all this analysis and he shows and it's a very interesting as well as ironic thing that he goes to show through Goethe's science of colors how actually it is a non-dualist and non-linear alternative. So within Europe he wanted to show an alternative and this is what he wanted me to do to carry on his unfinished work the coincidences, and now that we are talking of trails, so there are these, like in India you have uh, like the, these uh, roads and scholarship and all, there is a parallel scholarship, which is called INLAX, and uh, which is like, there are, so to go to uh, England, or you can come to US also, and they're conducted together, so to say. So I had applied for that, and I was on the, in the final round of it, and they want admission somewhere. My, this guy, J.P. Subaroy, he wanted me to go to Edinburgh, because his reason was Scottish Reformation is different from the English one, as well as the European one. So you'll be under different cultural influence. So I wrote to David Bloor, I mean, and he was one of those very because he didn't want me to come to the US at all. He said you'll become a part of the project. I mean, this is so. I and this was a fight, so to say, it will go on because he was. I mean, he he was one of those big gods in India and things like that. So. So I wrote to David Bloor at the time and I was interested in particle physics and at that time I had this kind of a crazy idea that how you can analyze particle physics with the newer, uh, like the tribe newer which is there of the stratification system that they have. So David Bloor was very nice. I don't know what he thought, uh, the craziest. So he wrote to me that the person who might be ideal for you is actually in, in the US who has who was trained in Edinburgh. Like that's Andy Pickering. So I wrote to Andy Pickering actually saying that, look, I mean, this is, I'm interested and all. He was very nice. He sent me his book, which had just come out as a gift. And I, that was one place, and the other place was to go to the MIT, this thing. So I come here uh, to work with Andy Pickering. The interesting thing though, to me was that here was, and this I show in that paper of mine, is that here was J.P.S. Ubro, He was a structuralist, and we were constantly struggling, and I was arguing with him. I said, no, this is not the thing. The world is very, very transformative, malleable, changes. And this was my disagreement with him this idea of structuralist kind of understanding. And here I come to work with another person who did not believe in the word structure. For him, the world is a dance of agency. So, in a sense, like my training became, so to say, again, this kind of a, through this connected whatever, uh, this tension. And at one level, initially I was just resisting both sides. It's only took me a long time to try to figure out how do I bring these together. So if you see imperial science is a play on that. science is inherently implying the idea of open-ended way of functioning, changing and transforming, including culture and other things, institutional practices. While the imperial implies the one, and I specifically use the word imperial rather than colonial, because the idea was that it is not just over there. It is here as well, the very idea of invention, how market is organized, how basically like industrial this thing is organized. And one of the difficulties I had, and I should have explained more in my book also in that, was what is the causal relation? Because one of the things we talk about is that, okay, how or why would somebody, something would come out? And maybe I should have, I think I should have specified more my argument was there is no way to come to that judgment that is very much a retrospective thing that what are the things and that is why when i was responding to like david uh, hess's like that yes there are these factors but that necessarily do not explain why this or that transformation takes place or not so my if you see in many ways that what is being seen here and i keep telling my students all the time that if there is something in your heart which is like propelling you what we can train you as is how methodologically as well as analytically you can express it better. But you should follow your heart and hunch. And I've more or less followed. That's uh, how I've gone about yeah, I
0: Yeah, mean, it seems like um, building on the things that you are reading, the, um, both the scientific literature as well as the sociological literature and STS, that what you're trying to do is see how what you're showing, what you're um, Recognizing in terms of hierarchies and exclusions that are both um, built and reproduced through these seemingly um, uh, impersonal or at least potentially exclusively only economic based technologies, um, really have these much longer. well, I don't, I don't want to be yeah. linear about yeah. it, but that you can see the legacy of imperialism in the present day yeah. through these technologies themselves. Um, and so, I mean, in, in chapter one, you're showing yeah. how invention itself is a retrospective construction. Yeah. Then in chapter two, you're showing how the center is not an obvious yeah. place. It's something that can, can move around for a variety of reasons. And then. Uh, For Chapter 3, when you're really looking at the United States and showing how there's particular traits that came to be associated with the MRI um, because of the things that its uh, manufacturers were needing to compete against, other things that were its rivals, and also these particular American sensibilities about things that are nuclear and how you would actually need – they you know, changing the name um, so that it wasn't so explicitly in reference to nuclear uh, things. And so the idea that the West, um, in this case, uh, is is really just a stand-in for the United States or a particular set of laboratories, how we have these big categories that are really stand-ins for something much, much smaller – these sorts of moves seem to be very indebted to a broader literature in uh, postcolonial studies, and to a certain extent, they're probably not as much subaltern studies. Yeah. But I, I wanted to ask you to what extent yeah. it makes sense to read this as a post-colonial yeah. STS. That too, I mean,
1: uh, maybe I should be frank about this part, that when I was writing it, like two of mine, Mentors, a good one is Sandra Harding and who have been very nice to me I mean, and Warwick Anderson and they have been so to say uh, people who have talked a lot with post-colonial and the difficulty that at one level I have had with the post-colonial is this conflation of at times identity with location as well as uh, the conflation of something which is structural and unchanging with the emergent I mean, it's not... Now, I could have clarified a lot more. I, I'll admit to that. I should have. For example, and this, this thing you uh, take really, really well, here it is much more a Homi Bhava influence. Like, if you see in Homi Baba's analysis of stereotype, it's quite different from what we see in sociology. In sociology, the idea of a stereotype is that, if I can take an example, that, okay, let's say, let's say the black man is the rapist. Or the black man is the sexualized, isn't it? We like okay. Now, what you start seeing here, and this, there are two kinds of question that comes very immediately. And I'm giving Baba's argument here. One kind of an argument that comes in sociological this thing is that how it is empirically, so to say, incorrect. It may be partially or wholly incorrect. So the idea is what that stereotype is in empirical, material terms, material terms, isn't it? That's one. Now the question that it forecloses or doesn't answer is that did it require rocket science to find out? Why is it that hundred years or so? I mean, okay, look at the statistics; you can find it out. Now, so the question that Baba poses here is that stereotypes actually operate by empirical freezing. It is, and through these metonymies of a metonymy or of presence, as he calls it, and. Again, this is my fault. That's something that in the book I should have explained a lot more here. That how these keep going on with regard to, and you rightly point out, with regard to West, that how U.S. would become the West. So, for example, India was way ahead compared to most of the Western countries. But because of the two countries, the West gets constituted and the non-West gets constituted in a certain way. Now, this is at one level a play of stereotype itself. And the stereotype, as Baba points out also, is not merely a social-cultural strategy. It's a biopolitical strategy of control. Now, that is another thing which now I'm writing a lot more, which I didn't write as much like in in the book here, is that, like this you had mentioned earlier, Laura, about that it's something which another empirical fact which struck me so, so much, that when I was looking at NMR research, Till 1960 or so, when the first standardized spectrometers come, they were building all their own instruments, they were doing their own experiments. So what happened? All of this technological scale just goes off. After that, zero. Nothing. Now, one way to look at is this, of course, the ideological influence where the irony of it is that in order to compete with the West, they're trying to imbibe that cultural thing which comes through the knowledge. And what it does, and I'm seeing even now, there's a now article I'm writing, it black boxes technologies completely. They're frozen, so to say. And it is just seen like that so much so that even these, like the Suryan example I talk about that who was doing in 1940s, when he talks of his influence, he's talking about the Western influence. He's not talking about the influences in India, even though Actually, the influences were by people like C.V. Raman, who even got the Nobel Prize, and there was a very strong spectrometry uh, research which was there. So what you start seeing is partly ideological, partly discursive, partly cultural, but it it plays out in continuous ways, the stereotypes.
0: Yeah, one of the um, nice episodes that you show really well is how um, India in relation to the United States in the, in the 80s or so, was characterized as a non-West-West relationship. And yet you show that other countries that had a very similar kind yeah. of relationship to the United States, like the UK or Sweden, yeah. they were not uh, constituted as the non-West because uh, they figured in this Western imaginary. Um, so it's really interesting to be able to see in such a clear case yeah. how that how that dichotomy works. So building building on the issue of post-colonial uh, uh, studies, hand it over to Venus.
3: Yes. Um, so in follow-up to um, kind of our meditation on Baba's work of the biopolitical strategies of control um, through the use of stereotypes and how this also plays into like the larger empirical freezing of the knowledge produced from, say, subaltern peoples that are on the periphery of a larger Western paradigm and hegemony. I was wondering how this type of um, – like how your book project or just kind of maybe workshops that you were working through with colleagues in a larger – Community of academics, the type of pushback or feedback that you receive, because once again, this is a larger hegemonic framework that some might be really resistant to, or some might be um, more comfortable with opening up, um, kind of their regimes of analysis in, in terms of accepting your work and pushing it further.
1: Well, I I think maybe I thank you for asking again. I mean, this, these are just fabulous questions, and I hope I had such interlocutors when I was writing my book as well uh, actually it was very hard and I have not, like I should have said this, that Andy used to keep telling me, like my advisor used to keep telling me, I don't know why you write like this, in fact he, he would just keep saying is that I don't know why, what is like, and it was like almost like an anxiety that I would have that's why, like I mean you're so good with the science and one of these complaints he had with a lot of the STS people was that they don't know the science They haven't got it right or so. And with me, he would say that, okay, I mean, you are able to do this. So that itself to him was, uh, and I still remember that when uh, I was about to complete my PhD, this was 2005, yes, like when I had these two papers, one in social studies of science and one in science, technology, human values. And I still remember meeting him. He said, well, now you have proven yourself. There must be something good about it. Otherwise, you wouldn't have gotten this or something like this. So, it was what I would say here is, and psychologically, and I tell my students, and it's an interesting comment that Laura made, Some, and I think it is to remember. She said that, what I was saying is that I, I occupy this very intriguing kind of a place or difficulty, this thing, where I'm doing within sociology department, I'm doing STS, and I'm doing this post colonial and post structuralist. And I, I think, and it was very, very, like, very insightful to say that, uh, and also, like, uh, I would say very positively, that there are a lot of people who are students in particular or others, and there are these groups. At times, this would make me very anxious. That, and you can see in the book that many times I'm not discussing, because within STS, for example, use of theory is not celebrated. I mean, there is this kind of a thing, but Donna Haraway would almost sit by herself there is not that much of very theoretical engagement that you will see. If you see like in social studies of science or science technology, human values, even science as culture, you cannot publish a theoretical paper. You have to have an empirical list. One of the things that like if you ask me and now I'm able to and I want to share it partly because the students who are coming up, they are very different generation. I had a lot of insight about in the book. Many a times like these things are there and I would not explicitly mention because I was very anxious that how would it be received just by my using that language, so to say. And only now, in a sense, i have coming about. So there was this kind of a thing. Then I was in sociology. Now, sociology, as we know, that until 1990s, they were not even ex- accepting W.E.P. Du Bois' work as a part of the canon. I mean, if you think of the amount that he's done with so many of these things, It's a kind of a... Going into the post-colonial is another kind of a thing. I mean, it's almost like I feel the blinkers start coming in. Now, so there is this kind of a thing which I went through with that book a lot. I mean, I'll be lying, and part of the reason why it has 60 pages of notes is because of the fact that there were these questions we were coming from the reviewers, there was my own anxiety through my experience, which I would not suggest to your generation, and I am not doing myself. In fact, it was interesting too, that I'm bringing out much more explicitly that you people are so insightful that you could see, for example, that what am I playing with? But at the same time, it is almost like lying in the undercurrent because I was so afraid that if I brought it up, whether I'll be bracketed in a certain way. And what will it do with this or that? Not that it helped, to be honest. I think it would have helped a lot more had I done it, brought it. And that is what I'll I'll tell you people too. So the point here is that how do we go about engaging it? How do we bring it about? And it is worthwhile and it is something to do, I would say, as a practical question.
0: In addition to um, being able to understand these different fields in terms of STS, post-colonial studies, the terrain of the broader field of sociology, but as well as the the science, it is so true that one of the credentialing mechanisms for STS people and I, I think that they're Uh, it's it's sort of with good reason, um, the necessity of knowing the science, too. Um, You also, for writing this book, had to know a lot about the law. Um, And one of the things that I I found most um, sort of Powerful was seeing how the um, corporate development of the MRI really affected the story so much, especially sitting here at Vanderbilt, which was yeah. one of the recipients of the, um, the subsidized funded uh, MRI machines yeah. to push through research uh, because of, uh, of legal needs of the manufacturers to create markets to get FDA approval so despite the narrative of there being high health care costs and laws to drive down those costs, um, at the same time, there is this, what you call the the American technoscience uh, um, sublime in the idea of technology um, yeah. being good. Um, but in, on the issues of patents in yeah. particular and in the context of India, Meredith was going to pick up with a question.
3: Yeah, so um, in Chapter 5, you talk a lot about uh, Indian attitudes towards patents and the highly, and the highly individualized culture of uh, scientific research when you're exploring uh, the, the three respective culture like research cultures. And uh, you mention in Chapter 5 that scientists in India showed little interest in obtaining patents, um, and you mentioned that earlier too, and that this practice has changed dramatically in the last few years. And I'm curious if you think that that's a function of increased globalization in this transnational techno scientific landscape, if this hi- if these hierarchies are shifting so that maybe um, Indian attitudes are going to start shifting towards this hegemonic culture where it's this like publish or perish kind of mentality um, with you need to collaborate with the the lab down the street from you and you need to patent everything that you do, um, or if the cultures are way stickier than that.
1: Well, thank you again. And uh, First of all, uh, there is a dramatic change which has come about, particularly uh, post-in the new millennium and all, because the economic prosperity has increased. There is so much funds through the government to patent. In fact, they're patenting almost anything and everything and sometimes i've jokingly asked them that okay you can patent but how would you protect because one of the things which i point out like like ge or others they would just take up the thing and you can keep fighting i mean like because it costs so much legally that you eventually cannot like go about so there is that kind of a thing wherein they want to compete like in india they want to compete in that way and so there's a lot more funding and so there is an acceptance of and this is already translated into publication terms that now, in order to get your, like, promotions and all, there are these all these publications that are required and those kind of things. But having said that, what I would say is that the earlier one was also part of hegemony culture in two different ways. One, this idea of, like, which is a West European or European idea or the Western European idea of science as transferring as knowledge. You would almost always see that this argument is that like you see in George Basala and all when he's writing 1960s but even earlier that how the institutions need to develop, how the culture needs to develop and then the rest will come into place. So the idea of emphasis on knowledge itself or science as knowledge, part of it was coming from the hegemonic I would say western colonial which was there and part of it from the Hindu Brahmanic which is another hegemonic and as appropriate not as but yeah very appropriative in its own ways because it appropriates with regard to Muslim, the lower caste and other things. So that too was hegemonic, that too was arising out of different contexts but there is a lot of change now with regard to patents. There's a lot more mind going on.
0: Well, um, we've uh, taken so much of your time and you've been so generous with us Um, and sort of to to wrap up and think about um, sort of the bigger picture. um, Courtney was just going to close. So just looking at the book, because it was so broad, because just by virtue of the fact of, of tracing these trails and these connections and these entanglements, that it happened to span everything from law to you know, different countries, um, and I felt that the book was actually written in a very accessible way, that you know, because it wasn't very um, explicit or, or really pushing a particular frame, it was very friendly to a much broader audience than maybe it would initially have seemed to be. Um, So with that, knowing that there could be a lot of different kinds of people and a lot of different uh, mindsets reading this, what kind of conversations were you hoping this book would spark? What do you want to see happen when people talk about this?
1: Well, I keep repeating this that how oh, these questions. I mean, I can just feel this. I mean, <laughs> this would have been fabulous if I was teaching before, or like maybe the book that we are writing. We should engage with you people in so many. Uh, I I think first and foremost, like one of the concerns I had was that that and at times I have said this that that STS has been one of those frontiers in terms of redefining science. And it has, and science has been very central to the Western imaginary, the dominant imaginary, the masculine imaginary in so many ways. And the feminist science studies have disrupted, particularly with the masculinist part, but with the non-Western or the post-colonial, there wasn't very much. When the post-colonial interventions came about, my worry was, within the STS, my biggest worry was that at one level it is coming from this sort of a place of moral taking care of the other, and this bothered me to quite an extent, not to say that these theories had any problems per se, but at times it made me feel that it is coming from the, that oh, the other has been excluded, the other has this kind of a uh, less or lack, we need to give them. Now, my worry was coming from, if you see post-colonial studies, one of the things they have shown really, really well is precisely that this moral taking care of the other can make you complicit, complicit in the colonial itself. We know, for example, the, the feminist post-colonial scholars have shown that how the the first wave of liberal feminism, even in that kind of a group, the white feminists who wanted to take care of the uh, the people in the janana, like in the, uh, the garb or like inside, like in the home, of, they became complicit in the colonial. So at times my worry used to be, to be honest, is that whether we can force ourselves to rethink this part that we don't run into that with the STS. The second part which was there is that we are dramatically moving into a very transnational kind of contestations, which I was trying to show even uh, in my present paper, that it's no longer that kind of an old world wherein there's to be an old colonial joke. There was a British colonial official who was asked that, how do you rule when they don't know your language? And the colonial official goes on to say that, well, you just speak louder. And it is a metaphorical but also something very substantive that if you see colonialism operates with that, if you see even the WTO treaty with regard to drug trials or something, it was just that the West spoke louder and you got it done. But that is no longer working. So we are moving in a place wherein the contestations are becoming extremely messy and otherwise, and if we don't take cognizance of this transfer, and it has happened in a very quick way, so it is not just that the people over there are in need or so. There are these different hierarchies which are at play. What kinds of appropriations will come or not? So these are sort of issues which I had. Now, there is also another part of your question is in the sense of, this was my worry and it goes back to the question that I started with, is that because I am dealing with so many of these things, I was very afraid who will be the sort of a reader, what? So in chapter 2, then I'm going into so much of technical detail about like parts of it. Then I'm going into like so much of detail with regard to how the U.S. healthcare, this thing, and the monopoly, this this is a work. In the Indian history part, I'm going in that way. So I don't know. At times I doubt that whether it was a good strategy or not. And I'll be lying if I say it is not. That thought has come to me. That whether the expectation is so much from different readership and uh, that... And this was a worry that I had, and I still have, if I will say. And with the new book, this is something I'm just trying to struggle again.
0: Well, the, the book gave us exactly what we needed, which was some inspiration and some creative thinking, pulling um, very soundly on a variety of different fields. Um, and so we just really want to appreciate, uh, appreciate the book, and thank you for your time. Thanks.
1: i just also just want to say in the end that thank you so much this is one of the most exciting engagement I've had because one of the, the difficulties that I've had is that either of one of the complaints which has come oh why do you use deconstruction it's such a nice material history or somebody else saying that why does he do this part i mean why does he not do this so and in uh, somebody says that oh it's too short and i'm just i was just thinking that okay like how, what is happening here with the readership And I have not seen like this level of like wherein you just even caught on to things which I was hiding with sometimes like the post-colonial references. Some of the thinking that okay, Bhava will be too hot to handle. So uh, uh, thank you so much, and I really really appreciate this. Thank you. It's a pleasure.